One thing I think I did not perhaps say sufficiently clear, most of you know this, but if you, you are unclear at all, our annual meeting today at 3 o'clock does take the place of an evening service. So there is no evening service here tonight at 6.30, just so save you the trip of coming and saying, why are the windows dark? Turn to God's Word in Genesis. I do something a little unusual today as I take snatches of three different chapters, actually, a little bit from the end of Genesis 4, a segment at the beginning of 5, and a segment at the beginning of 6 as we see things moving forward. We've been concerned with just two or three human beings on earth up to this point, and by the point I finished reading this morning in chapter 6, the number of human beings on earth are in the hundreds and many thousands and whole societies are being created. But there's something the Word wants us to know that I think unites these several chapters. And actually, I'll be referring back as I speak a little bit to uh, chapter 4 beginning at about 19, but we read that last time. So I'll begin at 25 this time, chapter 4, verse 25. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the written account of Adam's line, and we're not going to read this whole chapter, but just through verse 8. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, created him male and female, and blessed them. When they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and image and named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, he lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. If you go down this genealogy, I just want to pick out one person farther down in verse 22. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters, and altogether Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, because God took him away. And then this word in the beginning of chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, and his days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim, or great warriors, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. 
They were heroes of old, men of renown. This is God's holy word. Many years ago, when I was a very young preacher, I remember one time preparing for a funeral for a man who I had not known very well. I hadn't been at the church too long, and these were folks I didn't see that often. And I was talking with the widow and trying to prepare the service, and she brought out a piece of paper and asked me if I would read at the service what she termed her husband's favorite poem. Well, I want to be obliging on these occasions. I asked if I could see it, and I read it over, and I quickly recognized in it a poem I remember seeing in early school days that makes a classic anti-Christian statement. I tried to be kind, and I told the wife my task was to preach the gospel. And if she felt this poem really needed to be read, maybe a family friend or someone who knew her husband would read it. I would be fine with that. I think she got the message without my being too negative that it wasn't appropriate because she dropped the issue. If you wonder why I was uncooperative at an occasion when you would say, why didn't you just do what the lady asked? I'll quote a few excerpts from this poem. It's a famous one that kids used to memorize years ago. I suppose they don't anymore. The name of the poem is Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Here's just a couple of stanzas from it. One stanza reads, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Further it goes on, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment my scroll, for I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, as I told you, I hadn't known this man too well whose funeral I was going to lead, but I knew him once I heard that was his favorite poem. And I was sad for what I knew. Because Invictus, the poem, celebrates the unvanquished spirit of pure humanism. Mankind defying nameless gods. The poem even says, whatever gods there may be. To emerge from conflict in life with head unbowed and and storms not battering or destroying you, man standing triumphant is the story of Invictus. There's no place there for any philosophy of the living God or sin or repentance or faith in God's redemption or a new life. You don't need a new life if you're the captain of your soul and you can conquer everything. I thought of that poem this week because I am the captain of my soul could be called one of the themes of society without God. And that's what we're looking at today in brief portions of Genesis 4, 5, and 6. In fact, Genesis 4 and 5 in particular outline two opposing human societies developing side by side in the world that started in that day and and it still goes on today. These two same societies continue to develop. You could give them many different names, but we might call it the culture of godlessness versus the children by faith of the Most High God. 
In Genesis 4 and 5, it's like the human family or the human river. If you think of a river dividing, you know, into two streams, they flow on for a long distance but never again really meet. And in this case, they are ancestral lines of humanity, one coming from Cain, the other coming from Seth, but they're actually bigger than those two men because it is what is believed or not believed in those two human rivers that really make the difference, not just who their ancestor was. As societies in our text we're being given to believe we're now multiplying by the hundreds and thousands, and, you know, you just start to do the equations as sons and daughters are born, and these patriarchs who lived so many years, it's noted that their most significant children weren't even born until, I guess you weren't a grown-up until you were 100 years old. And then they had more children beyond that time, way past the age of 100. These things sound incredible to us, but they're reported straightforwardly as history here. And there's every reason to think that the human DNA was not yet weakened by all the disease and difficulties that make us such fragile people today, that indeed these were fantastic lifetimes that these people lived, particularly the chain of godly people whose ages are noted. You might notice that the ungodly's ages are not given. And here are people either looking in faith, hoping in God, trusting in what's been revealed to them by God, and walking in His ways, worshiping Him, or considering themselves primarily as the captains of their own souls. So first of all, today I want to look with you at in these, what I would call transitional chapters. Of course, Noah's going to be the next big concern we'll have in chapter 6, but we're in transition here. And I want you to see the outward flourishing of the line of godless humanity. And it all comes from Cain. Now, just back up with your eyes a little bit, up into the middle column of chapter 4 or so. You remember, perhaps, what happened to Cain after He disobeyed in offering God a wrong sacrifice and even turned down the chance to make it right. The Lord said, all right, you know what I've revealed, and why don't you just do it, and we can go back there and begin on a right footing. But Cain wouldn't even do that. And so he went out unhappy and belligerent into exile from the presence of God, having murdered his brother, being defiant and remorseless about that. And yet God for his own purposes, chose not to show Cain the death penalty, which would have been deserved for what he did, and which was later in Scripture certainly announced for any deliberate killing like this. God chose to spare Cain, apparently to show his marvelous mercy, and put this mark, whatever it was, this mystery mark on him, so that other people wouldn't kill him, wouldn't come after him and and avenge Abel. Abel may have had You know, others, as society went on, there may have been those that said, we can't have a murderer among us, and and they would have sought to bring Cain down. But the Lord protected him and gave him, apparently, some kind of long life, and then chapter 4 tells us about many of his descendants. Oh, every preacher fields the question, where did Cain get his wife? It's not a hard one. He married his sister, obviously. Where else would he get a wife? He had to marry a sister. There were no other women from any other family. 
And as Cain and his sister married, we read their descendants were born. They built a city. They domesticated livestock. They learned to make music. That's noted here. They even got into using metal for weapons. You get a little hint that the anthropologists can say, boy, there were some fairly advanced things going on here in the line of Cain. They were people who evidently didn't have to spend one day a week on worship, so they had seven days to work in their farms and their factories and make music in their concert halls and go to their art museums and see their art. And so the sense is that they began to develop a pretty high society. Well, one individual is actually singled out in Cain's genealogy, and you should notice him. I didn't mention him much last time. Verse 19, Lamech. Lamech was the seventh from Adam through the fatherhood of Cain, seventh man to live from Adam. That number is important in Scripture. And Lamech is here the pinnacle, but I really would rather say the low point of Cain's progeny. He was the first man. What's the first thing we're told about that made him famous? He took two wives. Now, that isn't denounced in loud words here. God doesn't thunder over that, but it clearly is against the pattern of Genesis that two would become one flesh, one man and one woman would cling to each other. There's no room for a third person in that. Lamech said, I can do marriage my way. I'll have, if one wife is good, two are better. I think he probably learned that wasn't such a great idea, but that was his problem. But you see... Lamech, as a braggadocio, a man who sort of thumped his chest and said, nobody will get the best of me. And if I kill somebody and and someone else doesn't like it, I'll kill seven more or 77 more. This man was the, the boaster to beat all boasters. Human egotism popped its cork with Lamech. He would have given some of the great egos of history like Stalin or Osama bin Laden, a really good run for their money. Well, Cain's family line was apparently a microcosm of people who achieved great things in agriculture, in business, in the arts, in architecture. And you would say, wow, they were a social success. But there's not a word about them spiritually. And the assumption is made that they lived in the same spiritual poverty and ignorance of God that their ancestor Cain did. So while the society was rising, the spiritual climate was descending. You see, there's no direct correspondence between what we would call high culture and high spirituality. You could see a 20th century illustration of that, if you will, Nazi Germany. Germany is a country of high culture. It's the country of Bach and Beethoven. It's a country of many fine painters and and great literature like Goethe and others who who wrote in the German culture. And so along came the Nazis in the early part of the 20th century. And Hitler, of course, was a frustrated artist. And you can find this well-documented that he decided as he rose to power, he was going to be the world's greatest art collector. And Hitler and his generals went in every time they conquered a city, there were special instructions for troops to plunder. They had troops with particular education in these things who led the way in plundering the art museums and stealing the best paintings. Railroad boxcars full of them were brought back to Berlin for Hitler's 
dreamed of one day greatest art museum in the world. And the cache of these that was found after the war was simply fantastic. Here's the Third Reich practicing barbarism against human beings and yet admiring the high culture of Europe and its art. So what equation is there between high culture and a high spiritual or moral value? Evidently none. And evidence piles up that even in 21st century America, we are building a culture bent more and more on determination that we be secular, pushing out the deliberate acknowledgments of spirituality, even if they aren't evangelical Christianity, even the acknowledgement of God as a providential ruler that our founding fathers so frequently spoke about. And how easy it is to take a leap in a well-developed, technologically high, economically, well, we don't feel economically strong at the moment, but we're still economically stronger than almost everyone else, militarily strong, culturally strong, business, universities, from all, there are people all over the world want to come here. We could develop this high culture and be spiritually and morally bankrupt people not far from Lamech and the line of Cain. And if you want proof, just take a look at something like Hollywood or the Donald Trumps of the world or those who think that some messianic idea of a right political realm is going to change everything. Human beings look and sound much the same across the centuries, full of proud vanity when they lack any humility or hope in the presence of the living God. Lamech basically howled here that he would take on any opponent, verses 23 and 24. Any man who comes at me is going to find out who's in charge. I'll kill 77 if I have to. You know, you listen to that, and then let me juxtapose something. Obviously, Lamech didn't live in history to hear the words in the ministry of Jesus Christ, but if he had, I'm sure he wouldn't have understood what was being said when Jesus was talking to Peter in Matthew 18. And Peter said, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Peter thought that was extraordinarily generous. And Jesus said, no, Peter. Seventy times seven. Contrast that standard of the grace of God spoken by the Son of God with Lamech saying, I'll kill 77, bring them on. And when you understand that difference, you understand these two human societies that begin to dwell side by side in the world. Well, let's move to the other society that we could call the stalwart sons of God. And they are predominantly here, the children born from Seth. Seth, at least, is the significant personality. Verse 25 of chapter 4 is it's his birth that signals something new and spins out a genealogy through chapter 5. I would just have you notice, and I think it's a, a message all by itself without me really elaborating on it, that the genealogy of Cain in chapter 4 doesn't give us the age or the length of life for anybody. The genealogy of Seth's descendants through ten generations in chapter 5 gives us the exact long, 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 long lifespan of every one of his apparently godly descendants. What message is God giving in that? 
He seems to be saying you don't really notice that much the individual lives of the ungodly. You might remember some of the technology they left behind, but you notice the people who live for God. You honor them all their days and honor them when they pass from this life. Well, Seth was the beginning of the appearance of what we would call simply the Lord's elect. Now, be careful. It's not simply a matter of being born out of the you know, DNA of Seth that makes you a child of God. We know better than that as we learn the gospel in the Scriptures. But here is a line of predominantly godly people. They also had Adam as their grandfather and great-grandfather, just as the children of Cain, like Lamech did, same basic ancestry. If you go back far enough, they're, they're all sinners in both streams, but some were primarily godly. And if they were made of the same sinful clay, you have to ask yourself, what then made the difference? Just family environment? Just good, good teaching? Well, that was a contributing factor, I'm sure. But you would have to go deeper than that. And if you probe the Scriptures deeply enough, you know it's the plan and decree and spirit of God. Singling out and drawing those whom he would choose to call to himself one by one, to become his beloved possessions. Augustine is a name we mention often around here. By the way, if you want to learn to say that important name in Christian theology, it is Augustine. Just remember, it's not the city in Florida. That's St. Augustine. Augustine is the church father. Augustine lived approximately 500 years after Christ. One of the great books among many that he wrote was called The City of God. And the thesis of this book, which is so important and shaped many minds to come after him, was that the human race was the story of two distinct groups of people. Here's what Augustine said. He called them two cities formed by two loves. The earthly city formed by love of self and contempt for God is destined to flower for a time but then pass away. Then he said there is the city of God whose people actually have contempt for self, but give glory to God. They are destined to endure forever. And Augustine saw all of history as those side-by-side cities, and, and I'm just tracing where that comes from here in the book of Genesis. The city of man, if you want to call it that, the secular city, is one that always values man and puts him on a pedestal and measures everything by man. Starts out with a human definition for everything. By the way, I've, and you know, I'll be careful with this. Talk to me about it if you'd like me to refine this comment a little bit. But I'm always wary when students come who are studying at secular universities and tell me their major is psychology. Now, there's great value to be learned in psychology. But the problem with psychology, as it's taught in most secular places, is it really makes man the measure of everything. It's a very humanistic endeavor if it doesn't have the priority of God in view. It comes like the philosopher Rene Descartes, whose famous little saying was, I think, therefore I am. In other words, all knowledge spins out of me. The fact that I'm able to think and reason, well, that's where everything starts. The wisdom of the sons of God begins, rather, with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Let's go from there. 
you might almost reduce it to something as simplistic as a child's seesaw on a playground. I think these are disappearing from playgrounds. I understand OSHA's real upset about seesaws and all the dangers they impose. But anyway, most of you know what that is, teeter-totter, seesaw, child on one side, child on the other. And the idea, of course, is you go up and down. And if one child is in the air, obviously the other one is down. Well, if you have a seesaw and God is on one side and man is on the other, there's a very simple concept. Both cannot be in the air and be exalted at the same time. And if you're going to have a society that says we begin with man, we exalt man, we start from man, God is low if not forgotten. Only when God is exalted high is man in his right place. And individuals do this, and entire national societies do this. Schools of thinking do this. Universities do it. Families do it. Do you exalt God or do you exalt man? Well, there's a crucial statement in our text, the very last sentence of chapter 4. Don't miss it. It says, At that time, consequent to the birth of Seth, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Remember, it's given you this whole long account of Cain's family, obviously telling you by those words that nobody in Cain's whole line was calling on the name of the Lord. But following the birth of Seth, men began to call. Martin Luther said that in the descendants of Seth, here's what he, I quote him, he said, the face of the Old Testament church began to emerge here. Now remember, based on God's promise back in chapter 3, that all-important verse 15, when the Lord said to Eve, I'm going to put enmity between, or to Satan, I'm sorry, God was speaking to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That was a prophecy of something that was going to happen. A seed born of Eve, the woman, or some woman, was going to strike a defeating blow against Satan. It's pretty obvious that person is not Cain, and it's also pretty obvious it doesn't seem to be any of the sons of Cain, and Adam and Eve must have been thinking, how's that promise ever going to come true? Well, now through Seth, you have a whole new beginning as the generation point of a line of believers, and as a matter of fact, it's no coincidence whatsoever that you could look back in Luke chapter 3 when the genealogy of Jesus Christ, I'm sure you read that all the time. You know, you go and read Luke, you say, I'm going to read the gospel of Luke. So you, you read, 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 and oh, a genealogy, jump over that, don't need that. Go read it. Luke 3, read, read the genealogy of Jesus. It goes back to Adam through Seth, not through Cain. For Seth is the new beginning. Christ's own human lineage, at least, comes through Seth. And notice something else, and this is the beautiful symmetry of the Bible. I hadn't noticed this for a long time, and it had to be pointed out to me by a commentator. Chapter 4 has Lamech, the seventh man from Adam on that side, being this boastful, proud epitome of secular society. Well, guess what? there's a similar example who's the seventh from Adam on the side of Seth. And I dropped in and read about him there in chapter 5, 21. His name was Enoch. All we know about Enoch 
is amazing. It isn't much. He lived 365 years. He was a relative kid by their standards. He was the youngest of these. Most of these fellows are 900. Enoch only lived 360. They wouldn't have even made any deal about that in the paper when he died, right? 365 years. He was a kid. He walked with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. What a mysterious sentence. We don't know all the details of what that meant, but it tells us here was a man of such trust and dependence, a man of prayer, a man who hoped in the Lord, a man who staked everything in the Lord, who delighted to speak about God and worship God. I'm elaborating, never having met him, of course, but he had to be a real standout for him to receive this amazing blessing, not just of a long life as other men of faith received, but of not tasting death and being taken out of this world like Elijah was. The only two examples we know in the Bible of people who didn't taste death who were taken to God in some immediate way. Amazing. The seventh from Adam and a great example of righteousness. Well then, let me wrap up here with a quick final point. As we see Seth's descendants going further on. It sounds like a great story. These people living 900, 840, 895 years. Godly people. What an incredible, you know, they're like the cedars of Lebanon. They're like human great redwood trees or something. These huge men living long lives and having dozens and hundreds of children who, of course, were having hundreds of other children who had hundreds of other children, and there's a great multiplying line coming out of that. Well, sadly, because I went forward into chapter 6, we have to speak briefly of both the rise and the downfall of Seth's descendants as men of faith. There's a line of relationship drawn here from Seth all the way to Noah, who we'll be speaking of soon, Noah, who became the deliverer of the human race. And you can do the math. Chapter 5 allows you to do the math to know exactly at what point in each man's life the next notable son was born and so on. You can chart this. You want to draw a little chart? You can figure it out yourself. And you'll find out that it's telling you that the devastating flood of judgment upon the earth came in the 1,656th. It's a hard one. 1,656th year of human life on earth. God's interested in charting that. He's interested in telling us, look, here are, here are ten lives from Adam through Noah, ten lives that span 1,656 years. Those ten men in overlapping patterns were on earth all that time. Does that strike you as a little unusual? Put it in terms maybe you can understand a little bit better. If Adam was born when Christ was born, Methuselah, the last of these to die, died when the pilgrim colony in Massachusetts was well established already. Amazing. Ten lives of faith spanned those huge centuries. What was God saying there? I think implicitly he's saying, I put my rich blessing on lives of faith. No details given us about the line of secular humanity as far as long life at all. But with these folks, 
God shows that each of these were an individual particularly loved and cherished by him, and he knew the hour of their birth and the hour of their death, and he honored them. Their deaths were precious in his sight. They were saints who were like human skyscrapers in their generation, who trusted God without any of the better evidence that you and I have. They didn't have a written Bible. They certainly didn't have the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet they walked with God. They trusted God, and God honored them. And while Cain's people were famous only for the cultural artifacts they left behind, cities and politics and weaponry and music, these people left a tremendous heritage of faith. Sadly, it doesn't stay that way. Because as Genesis 6 opens, we read of a great loss that occurs. Now, here's an interpretive issue here. Some people read a phrase in Genesis 6 to the sons of God. Who are they? There's a whole school of thought that takes the sons of God and says these are angels. Perhaps some kind of disobedient angels coming to earth and seeking human wives and marrying them. That's a tempting school of thought to follow. There was a time when I followed it, but I've turned completely away from it back to the more traditional understanding. Because if you see what I'm giving you in context today, who would the sons of God naturally be? Why, the people talked about in chapter 5. The whole flow and issue of those coming, the grandsons and great-great-great-great-grandsons of men of faith who in Genesis 6 now look upon the beautiful women of the line of Cain and say, well, we don't have any dazzling women like that in our village. Let's go marry them. Doesn't seem like such a bad thing. But if you understand what the Scripture's been teaching you, it's shown here that this intermarriage with unbelieving women who drew their husbands away from a trust in God who introduced in a, a cold water, you know, in the, in the boiling pot of faith, brought a dilution and a loss of godliness. The high water mark quickly dropped. And God was grieved. The heart of God was grieved as he saw by marriage, by having alliances of intimacy with those that the New Testament will come to call unequal yokes was destructive. Seemed like a little thing. Goodness, I want to marry a beautiful woman. What could be wrong with it? Well, she's against your God. That's what's wrong with it. And your faith is going to go out the window. And there's a story to be told about that that we'll pick up next time. But how about just some summary applications here quickly? Realize that neither here nor anywhere else does Scripture teach that godliness automatically comes from who your father is. It so happens that the dominant line of Cain and the dominant line of Seth were unbelief versus belief. But there was no guarantee for anybody in either of those lines that they would be either condemned or blessed by God. They had to individually, we know from the Scripture, hear God's call, follow Him, and put their hope in Him. God has no grandchildren, it's often said. Each one needs to come to faith and be reborn. Another lesson here, I think, is what we might call the remnant principle in Scripture. It begins here as in chapter 5, there's this big swelling tide of godly people, and then in 6, it sounds like it narrows down real quickly, and a lot of them fall away. And all of a sudden, the believers are minorities with 
unbelievers all around them, outnumbering them, outvoting them, canceling out much of what they're trying to do and believe and walk by. Isn't that how we find our walk is in the world? We feel overwhelmed. We gnash our teeth at the fact that believers don't predominate in high offices in Washington, D.C. Well, just be realistic. When have they ever? And will they ever? I read a lot, as I think you know, about American history, and I especially am interested in presidents, even obscure presidents. finished a book about James Garfield last week. Nobody knows who he is, but he's an interesting guy. And as I read about the lives of presidents, I would make this estimate without trying to be God's, a judge in God's place, but just as a reasonable estimate of spoken and, and written things that they left behind, who were the truly born-again presidents of the United States who really, in a biblical way, trusted in Christ and showed evidence of new life in Him? I would tell you I can't even imagine it's as many as ten out of 44 chief executives this country's had. Now, I'm not going to start naming names. That's not important. The point is, we seem to expect that our leaders are all going to be like us. And, of course, we would love it if they are. But the reality is they're not. And meeting spiritual giants in our lives like an Enoch is going to be an extremely rare thing. He was so rare that he was pointed out here for rareness, even in a time when many walked with God. The Lamechs, the boasters, the chest beaters who say, I can do whatever I choose to do, I'm the captain of my soul, are much more common. They are present in every generation, and unhappily, they're often in charge. These two rivers of humanity still flow. Sons and daughters of God work beside, witness to, pray for, befriend, and care for sons and daughters of darkness. And we should do all that. We can even read their books and admire their expertise and and sometimes take their advice. And we will often be governed by them, but never forget that we are the citizens of a different country. The borders of our country are invisible. And our ruler is actually the one who rules over everybody, even though they don't know it. Our King Jesus rules over those who acknowledge Him and those who acknowledge Him not. And the truly transformational people who will affect the stream of both societies in our time are those whose lives belong to Jesus the King. The ones who stand tallest, even if they have to do it quietly and do it alone, are those who have been transformed by the grace of God and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May God lead you to stand tall in your generation. Our Father, as we read of these things developing and moving forward, we see our world. Help us to see it with reality. We see things that are true today that were beginning a long time ago. But we're thankful that you have your witnesses in this society. We're grateful those who know themselves to be called to know Jesus Christ, to be those witnesses. Encourage us when we feel alone. Unite us with others who hope in you. Use the transformation you've done in us to influence 
and to quietly lead many others to see your grace and come to your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.